The blind stares of a million pairs of eyes Looking hard but won't realize That they will never see the peace Oh man! Yes, sir. It's all eyes on Cleveland. I am your host, Brad Ward. Mikey is here on the ones and twos. Tonight, we will be joined by a very special guest and show favorite, Nick Shook of Around the NFL. Some fantastic stuff from him as usual. We have some mailbag questions to get to. And a deep dive into new Browns cornerback M.J. Stewart. You are listening to All Eyes on Cleveland. You start getting excited. We are back in full effect. It's all eyes on Cleveland. As I said, I am your host, Brad Ward. I am elated to be with you here this evening and bring you another show. Uh, As I said, featured guest tonight, Nick Shook from NFL.com, around the NFL. He writes for them. Been doing a lot of work with the next-gen stats. You can catch all of his stuff over there at NFL.com. Uh, and follow the Around the NFL page for sure. Uh, We will get to that interview very shortly, but first you can catch all of our episodes where all popular podcasts are found, including iTunes and Spotify, Google Play, Radio.com, TuneIn app, among many others. We'll be published tomorrow morning at USA Today Sports Media Group's TheBrownsWire.com and the webpage uh, for all show news and all episodes can be found at uh, www.alleyesoncleveland.com. There it is. Good job, Mikey. Bring us in on the ones and twos. We got another one here teed up for you, ready to listen to. We're going to get right to the interview. We're going to come back after that, answer some uh, mailbag questions, and uh, take a little deep dive into new cornerback um, MJ Stewart. Interesting case he is. So we'll take a quick look at that, then we'll get you up out of here. You're locked in listening to. All eyes on Cleveland. Uh, And here is tonight's interview with the one and only Nick Shook. And we go live to the Nick Shook hotline where the one and only Nick Shook is on. He writes for Around the NFL. 
at uh, NFL.com, and we are thrilled to have him tonight. How you doing, Nick? You like that? You got your own hotline now. I was going to say, I think it's the first time I've ever heard anything named after me in my whole life. Other than yeah, myself. how so about that? Like, you know, it's pretty prestigious. The <laughs> Nick Shook Hotline. Yep, there it is. Uh, <laughs> well, how are we doing, sir? Oh, not too bad, you know. Just uh, get through another week of uh, NFL news. More college news on, on today's front. But, uh, you know, we're ramping up slowly for camp. Uh, we're, we're, you know, getting toward that period where football activities are going to start to happen here in the next week or so. And and slowly but surely, uh, well, actually pretty quickly if you think about it, uh, we'll be in the regular season. So, yeah, doing, doing well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, with that in mind, let me get to my first question for you, okay? Uh, mm-hmm. We are uh, just a few actual days, I think Friday is their first practice, non-padded practice they can do. Uh, I believe that's right, the 14th or 15th, 14th, that's, yeah, Friday. I think that would fall right around in line with the protocol established, yeah. Yes, um, and uh, so I believe it's Friday. Uh, so that gives them almost exactly a month, Nick, until they play the Ravens. Is there any way that this Browns team can be ready for that game? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that even though they have a lot of their meetings still on Zoom, that type of thing to, to enforce distancing, I think that's kind of become their new normal. And they, they, it sounds like, and obviously players aren't going to be like, hey, we haven't figured anything out. We don't know what we're doing publicly. <laughs> but it does sound like, you know, a lot of players and speaking with reporters recently have said, you know, they've, they've given pretty positive reviews for the way Kevin Stefanski has set things up. And knowing how last season went with in terms of confusion about offensive identity in the middle of a game, um, you know, I think Nick Chubb today said, like, we know, you know, we have a clear idea of what we're doing or a clear idea of the game plan, which last year didn't sound like they really did. So that should be encouraging, I think, um, and, and kind of point to maybe Kevin Stefanski's early success you know, even amid a pandemic, we'll see if that translates to the field. But yeah, they definitely have a chance. You know, okay. the, the thing is, is you, we are, you know, in, in a situation that is unprecedented, and, and for a new coach like Stefanski, is difficult than your average new coach. But at the same time, um, they're not the only team that has to figure things out this way, and, and no roster is the same from year to year. So there is going to be some change in turnover and everything else. And so there is going to be, you know, some things that every team has to adjust to with, with the way that they've had to go about this offseason. So I don't think the gap is as big as you might imagine it would be. Uh, and they're also still very talented. It's just a matter of putting it all together, and we'll see if they do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, on the topic of uh, Kevin Stefanski, he's been rather impressive, I think, um, up to this point. And, of course, they haven't played any games or taken any losses yet. So the honeymoon phase kind of, right? So, right. Um, but did you find it surprising that he actually went and visited Baker Mayfield in Texas in February? I, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. No, I mean, I think it's it's kind of a step forward in the right direction, or at least a good first step for him. Because this is a critical offseason for Baker, and, it, and the team goes as Baker goes. And mm-hmm. Kevin Stefanski's future as a head coach in the NFL very much is dictated by the performance of Baker Mayfield. So to try to initially establish that that you know, line of communication and also that understanding, I think, was, was a great first step and a, and a smart one on the part of Stefanski instead of waiting for these guys to get into the facility, which, as we later found out, they wouldn't even get in the facility until recently. So I think it was yeah. a very proactive measure on his part, and I think it was a wise one. 
Yeah, uh, definitely uh, was happy to see that. I was just kind of surprised. I didn't know, you know what I mean, uh, uh, that he had done that. Um, okay, so the Browns, uh, there's a report out that uh, they made, or they made a higher offer, I guess, for Vinny Curry, uh, who allegedly then, you know, decided to take less money, uh, like $2 million, uh, up to $2 million, I think, to be exact, to stay in Philadelphia. So that's now, uh, Nick, uh, Javian Clowney uh, that they supposedly were in on and made offers, uh, you know, kicked the tires on Everson Griffin. Uh, now Vinny Curry they supposedly had an offer in on. Why do, you, why do you, they feel they need another edge so badly, you think? I think that they're trying – to ensure that they have enough depth because they got caught, um, you know, flat-footed last year when they lost Miles Garrett to suspension and, and they lost uh, Olivier Vernon to injury. Uh, you had guys like Porter Gustin who basically came off the street out of USC and dealt with a ton of injuries at USC playing and, and making some plays, but by the end of the year, you had nobody left. So any type of depth, and especially experienced competitive depth, is always going to help your team, and I think especially that position because it is a very important position. Now, you're banking on Miles Garrett being available for a full season. You can't necessarily say the same about Olivier Brand, who has a bit of an injury history and obviously was hurt last year. So I think it's smart. I don't think it's a, it's an issue where they're concerned. I just think that they're trying to get better with quality players, get deeper with quality players, and with a few guys that kind of uh, fit those requirements out there on the market, then it's smart for them to kick tires on guys like that. I thought I actually had heard about the Vinnie Curry thing, so I was surprised that that didn't go down. But I wasn't surprised he went back to Philadelphia because it's where he spent the majority of his career, and, and he, I can understand the pool of trying to go back and, you know, get away in a city that you're familiar with instead of going to a team that has some promise but also had a lot of drama and doesn't exactly have a history of winning at that stage in your career. So it makes sense, um, I think, from Vinny Curry's perspective, and it makes sense from the Browns' perspective, and they just keep kind of, uh, you know, pushing forward and, and figuring out if they can add somebody else of quality. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Yannick Ngakwe has fired his agent. Um, there's rumors out there that the Browns have some issues in him. Now, he would be rather costly. Uh, he's going to be on a franchise tag of, like, $17.8 million. So that would be kind of a big deal, right? Uh, and he's a beast. Um, but they supposedly have some, you know, I guess it, the way it was written was some cursory interest, right, uh, in him. I, I I don't know. I guess my question, my question is, you know, Yannick Ngakwe, that's really sexy, right? That would be amazing, right? But with Andrew Billings opting out um, and the way the linebacker room is set up, would they not be better, uh, you know, served using some of this, maybe extra cap money that came available due to opt-outs uh, or a couple million dollars here and there to maybe bolster the inside of the line or even the linebacker room rather than the edge spot where you have Adrian Claiborne? I think it would um, make some sense to figure out how to replace what you lost in Billings opting out. I don't think cap space, you know, obviously it's not a big deal. They have enough cap space in the NFL remaining, but right. yeah, we were saying with some of the money that you recouped from other guys opting out, um, so, yeah, I think it would be wise, and I think numbers-wise, you're going to see that something like that happen. I don't know if there's necessarily that type of count. There are some better indie tackles out there in the market, but you have to get some interest from guys like that. And we all went, we all know what happened when the Browns went through that uh, circuit last summer with the Gerald McCoys and the Mike Daniels and those guys and how they ended up going to different places anyways. 
Um, yeah. Obviously, obviously, it's a different front office now, so it's a little bit different um, in, in terms of how they would, you know, approach something like that. So yeah, it would be wise, but I also don't think it really hurts to kick the tires on a on a guy like an Ngakwe who is young, who is very effective, he's very disruptive, he's going to command a lot of money, but you know that he's available to be had for a trade. He's under franchise tag that he refuses to sign. He's basically just languishing uh, on the inactive list for the Jaguars, essentially, because he's not going to play, but he can't go anywhere, and they can't do anything with him unless they can figure out a way to, to trade him and get something back, but that would usually require some sort of handshake agreement for the long-term deal. So they don't have all the leverage in the world when it comes to a Ngakwe trade, so it doesn't hurt to make a phone call and see what they might want for him, what would you know qualify, especially when there's been reported interest from other teams, including the offer of a Pro Bowl player who supposedly didn't fit Jacksonville's scheme, but had been. I'm thinking like maybe somebody like Xavier Rhodes, who is uh, an honorary Pro Bowl player. He was not a Pro Bowl caliber mm. player last year. So if it's somebody of that regard, then I guess that that report is a uh, um, it's accurate. But uh, you know the, the the title of Pro Bowl player is a little bit different. But I think. It doesn't hurt from the Browns' perspective to kick the tires on that and just see what they want. You know, let's make a phone call. Let's see what they want. Let's see if we can work something out and get a talented player in here. Because, you know, you have a lot of money committed to Olivier Vernon, but that money could come off the books if you wanted to part ways after this year. If you want to take that amount that's available and then direct it to a guy like Ngakwe, you just got Miles Garrett under contract. It doesn't make – it's not entirely outlandish to consider the fact that they would be able to do that. But if you are projecting for how they're going to sign guys down the road, you got to sign Baker in a few years. You're going to have to sign Chubb uh, next year, uh, after the end of next year. Um, you're going to have to sign Denzel Ward, you know, so on and so forth. There Hogan are big Gobi. contracts. Exactly. There are big contracts that are coming up um, and decisions that you have to make. So it's not exactly wise to take on a ton of salary. But if you do want to replace a veteran like Vernon with a younger guy like Ngakwe and kind of structure the deal accordingly, it is somewhat feasible. So if, you can, if he can be had for a bargain – then it starts to become a deal that you actually might want to consider, but you can never get to that point without first making the phone call. So just mm-hmm. because, and this is, this is what I was cautioning with a lot of different reports of different teams, just because teams demonstrated interest, sometimes te- front offices are just doing their due diligence and understanding right. as closely uh, as they can or as accurately as they can the state of other teams and where they stick with specific guys. Uh, the one thing I would say about Ngakwe that makes more sense than the other guys that would probably be on, like, you know, Clowney or was- you know, rumored to be a one-year deal, Iverson Griffin one-year deal, is I think, you know, after this year, you're going to – we're going to be looking at – they're probably – I would think that defensive end will probably be one of the top priorities in the draft. I mean, they're going to have to bookend something at some point long-term on the opposite side of Garrett. This would be one way to do that, I think. Yeah, um, yeah you make it right. So, I mean, I get – that makes more sense to me to do that, but – uh yeah, I, I agree. I just I worry about. I'll say this, you know, kind of to wrap this up on the defensive side of the ball here. But I worry a little bit about depth on, de- on defense. So if you look at safety, right? There you got three guys for sure. Um, you know, I guess Redwine would be a fourth. You're going to carry four safeties, I would assume, right? Yeah. Um, so I guess that's right. But you know, I, I worry a little bit about the depth there at safety, uh, you know, if red wine's forced into action again or whatever, um, you know, I worry a little bit about depth at, in the middle, like behind where Billings opted out. Right. Cause of course you have Elliot there who can be fantastic, but once again, he's a rookie and these rookies are going to be on the field taking live bullets. Never, you know, 
for the first time ever, you know, week one, right? Or, yeah, yeah, but you know, here's the thing: you can't, you know, you can't worry too much because there's there are roster limits for a reason. Like there's a salary cap for a reason. There are roster limits for a reason. You can't fill out your team perfectly. You're always going to have some sort of weakness, depth wise, or somewhere. It's going to be you're going to be a little bit thin somewhere. You can try your best to mitigate that, but then you also have to anticipate injuries and everything else that could happen. And now you got the pandemic, so you got to anticipate somebody potentially getting COVID nineteen. I mean, it's, yeah. it's never going to be as ideal as you, as you would like it to be. But I will give the Browns credit, especially as somebody who's followed the Browns for many years. This regime seems to know and understand its roster and its needs more than most regimes. Um, the most recent one did to an extent. They were more bombastic about it. They made bigger moves, but they were splash moves about it that sometimes backfired and blew up in their face. But there mm-hmm. also there were also regimes in the past that just made boneheaded moves. I mean, the Ray Farmer for example, get letting T.J. Ward walk and then going and signing an older, more expensive T.J. Ward and Dante Whitner never made any sense. I mean, you could go down the list with, with past regimes. So I think that for as much as you would like this team to be filled out, I don't think they're that far away from being reaching that point of quote-unquote completion because you're never going to be com- fully complete because of roster limits and salary cap situations. But for now, I think they've done a decent job. Very good. Very good. You're listening to All Eyes on Cleveland with special guest for the show, Nick Shook from around the NFL uh, at NFL.com. Um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about some of the stuff you've been doing there here in a few minutes, but uh, let's uh, move over to the guard situation here. So Drew Forbes opts out. I think he was going to try to compete probably and, and had a good shot, I think, maybe to start, right, at guard. Uh, we know Wyatt Teller's there. Um, your boy. The rookie, Nick Harris, I think he'll compete for it. And Chris Hubbard, will he compete for that position as well? And then they brought in two other guys, too. Yeah, I mean, Chris Hubbard has the versatility to do that. There's a reason they kept him on the roster when it's clear that he's not going to start at either tackle position. I think he is your your sixth lineman who could maybe be the guy that ends up starting at guard but probably is just kept as your swing tackle in the event that somebody gets hurt. I mean, let's go ahead and one. Week one, your left tackle gets hurt right out of the gate. Jezre Hurd, I said, Quills. Kendall Lamb has to come play left tackle. Then uh, Chris Hubbard ends up getting hurt as well. I mean, they're, they're, you have a, a score, a series of injuries that can go on in the blink of an eye. So to have him as security to, to replace, you know, either of your tackles if they were to get hurt, you know, of course you don't want that to happen, but if they were to get hurt, I think he's a great person to keep on the roster. And I also think that he could play guard if you can't figure it out. Now, this is the second straight season in which you're going into the regular season and thinking, well, they haven't figured out right guard, but the big difference is they've figured out both of the tackle positions, which makes that lack of stability or lack of reliability at right guard a little bit easier to mitigate, especially when you have a premier center next to him, J.C. Treader, and a premier guard on the other side of him, Joel Petonio. You know, you got five guys, and if four of those guys are solid, Cedric Willis being the other question mark, um, it's, it's a pretty good situation to be in. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the situation with – where they are on the offensive line, you know, with some of the guys around the league who have opted out um, and some of the guys who are on this roster that opted out because of COVID, um, it does make you have to adjust. But, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Malcolm Pridgen wasn't going to play. And that's, that's basically what I'll tell you. Drew Ford, right. I think, has a chance down the road. Um, but And he could have competed. I don't think he was going to play right guard either. He had a chance. He'll have a mm-hmm. chance in the future, but I don't think – uh, he was necessarily going to beat out Wyatt Teller, who was fairly solid last year in the rest that he got. I mean, he ended up basically beating out Eric Cush by the middle of the season, so, or by the time he played in New England. So um, I don't think there is in, in as bad a spot, but it, obviously I think you do want 
some more depth there. But again, you know, I, I go back to those lassos because when you look at the offensive line, you start to look at the guys that they bring in. I mean, especially after some injuries, you're bringing in some guys who don't have a shot of sticking in the NFL, but you got to see if they do because you don't know until you get them out of the field or at least in the practice field. And I think that's the type of guy that you were seeing opt out when you looked at a guy like Pridgen as opposed to a guy like Forbes who might still have a future. Yeah. Uh, interesting. A lot, a lot of the big guys, you know, opted out. Lots of them, right, around the league. It was yeah. uh, interesting to see. Uh, so would you basically just say then at this point, uh, you know, would you pencil in Wyatt Teller in that position? Like, you know, somebody's got to take that job from him. I would unless they, they see Hubbard as the better player there. Um, I don't think that that's going to happen. I think he has the potential to play there and play well. Um, but if I had to look at it right now, I would pencil Teller in and keep my eraser handy just in case they put Hubbard in. <laughs> keep it handy. All right, very good. Um, do you know anything about the progress of Dedrick Wills switching uh, sides? I know we talked about this before. You know, different people say different things. Some people say it's harder. Some people say it's easier. Um, you know, I've had some people on the show say it's very difficult. That's going to be a difficult transition, and some say that it's not so not too bad. Um, do you know anything about his progress of moving to the left side? I don't know if he's made any progress, but I do know that his skills translate and should make for an easier switch than your average tackle who's trying to switch sides. I think he'll make the switch faster than a guy um, – uh, like the kid from Iowa, uh, I, I think that, you know, it, it, it's a case-by-case basis, but I think the things that make him really good uh, are it's just a matter of changing your feet. I mean, it, it's, instead of having your inside foot be your left foot and a pass that, your inside foot's your right foot. And reps will assist with that, and he's gotten time to work on that. We really won't know until they actually get into football activities, which they haven't even really gotten into yet. Um, so we have to continue to wait for that, and then we really won't know until the first two weeks of the season. And I expect it to be a little bumpy to start. I don't think he's going to be great right out of the gate. Uh, yeah. Rarely are guys, rarely are guys, especially left tackles who are rookies, come out of the gate and extremely solid. So I think there are going to be some bumps in the road, but I think I will caution patience because he's got the frame, he's got the build, he's got the ability. He just has to get more comfortable over time, and that only comes with reps and game live game reps which he'll get with this season, and I think eventually he'll be the tackle that the Browns have needed since Joe Thomas retired. It's so crazy for me just to think about rookies stepping on the field without any preseason, just him, Delpit, all those guys. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's – I mean, it's going to be – the first two weeks are probably going to be big shocks to them. But, again, that environment's going to be different because there's not going to be fans in the stands or very few fans in the stands. So – I think that's going to be different for them as well, and I don't know if it's going to be quite a shock. The speed of the game will be the shock. That's what they always say. The game is much yeah. faster. Um, and they'll have to adjust accordingly. But this is not a team that is – this is not the 2017 or 2018 Browns where you're relying on, relying on a ton of rookies. You, know, you do have a lot of guys who have game experience. So, you know, if you go to, like, a, a specific website, like our lads, for example, that list their depth chart, and you see only two or three guys in, in green in your starting lineup, you should be pretty happy that you don't have a ton of rookies you're relying on right out of the gate. Yeah, good point. Definitely. Um, okay, so I saw I've been you know keeping track of your work as usual, and I didn't read it, but I saw that you wrote an article on Ben Roethlisberger, right? Yeah. Uh, so what's the deal with him? What's up with him? Is, is it skinny? Is it true skinny Ben Roethlisberger? What's what's his status with him and his elbow? He sounds like he's good. He sounds like he thinks he can come back even stronger than he was before, and he still wants to play uh, a few more years. So it's not you know a farewell tour for him or anything. 
he said that uh, it wasn't a Tommy John injury, but something else where three of the five uh, flexor tendons that are attached to his bone were torn off the bone. So it was a pretty serious injury, but it sounds yeah. like um, by all accounts, he's back and, and he's going to be on pitch count still. And he wanted to play in preseason. He probably wouldn't have been able to play in preseason or been allowed to play in preseason anyway because he's a veteran. Tomlin probably wouldn't have let him play. But um, he still wanted those reps. He's looking forward to the season. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, the thing with Ben that we've known for so long is he's huge, so he's hard to sack, hard to bring down. But he also gets hurt a decent amount, and it's always a highly publicized injury. You know, the boot, the oversized cleat, whatever it is. Um, so if he can stay healthy for a whole season, I think the Steelers can contend because they have a very good defense and they have an upcoming offense. Like they did a wide receiver with Chase Claypool, I think they got a stable of running backs who could be very solid as a committee led by James Conner. And, uh, and we'll see what happens. But it all still depends on Ben's health and whether he can play the whole season. And as of now, it sounds like he's solid. Okay. All right. Just kind of want to check status on, on that. You're listening to All Eyes on Cleveland, special guest Nick Shook from around the NFL. Uh, Nick, no preseason games, as we talked about a couple times now. Uh, they were going to use the preseason games to, you know, kind of test out uh, play calling with Alex Van Pelt. Uh, so, yeah, I had Zach Jackson on uh, a couple episodes ago, and, and he said that he thought that Van Pelt would call the plays because uh, that's how strongly – Stefanski felt about having somebody else do it. I'm not sure I'm real comfortable with that. I guess my question for you is, do you have a preference on this? Um, who calls plays for the Browns? Do you remember what it was like when Pat Shermer called plays for the Browns? I do. I do. Do you, remember how, do you remember how lost he was in the sideline? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do. I think I think if you have a first-time head coach and he's going to defer play calling to an offensive coordinator, I think it's always the better situation because it takes one responsibility off his plate, especially in a time like this when it's so difficult to, you know, adjust to everything that's going on and, and how your procedures – you know, coaches are creatures of habit and they want things their way and, and they, they want – you know, they don't want people to mess with their environment or anything else. Well, everybody's environment is they've all had to adjust and apply. Stefanski had to do so while also understanding how to become a head coach for the first time in a new town with a new team that he's still getting to know. So taking the play calling off of his plate in the game while also him leading the offensive game plan through the week or having a massive say in it, I think is probably the best way to go um, because then you can manage the game more. Like you can just pay attention to being a head coach instead of having to control the offense and be a head coach. Surely, uh, that, that does make sense. I, what about Van, what's Van Pelt's, he doesn't have much experience calling plays. It wasn't even in the NFL, was it? Uh, when he called plays, not that I'm aware of. No, I mean, I last know him as, as, a, as a wide receiver coach. So. Right, um, I think he called plays in, in like another league or something. Um, his, his experience was calling plays. Uh, yeah, he was off at the coordinator in Buffalo in 2009. But okay. I don't know how, I don't know how long. There you go. Was. Maybe that's he, it. He was he was promoted to OC in the during the season after they fired their OC, I believe after week one. So kind of like a learn on the fly situation. Um, I mean, once you're in the NFL for that long and you're around it, I don't think it's that much of an adjustment as an assistant to go from quarterbacks coach, position coach, to offensive coordinator, especially when your head coach has a lot of say over the offense. I think it's more of a collaborative effort, and then you're just the one who's calling the plays on game day and 
and kind yeah. of, you know, that's, communicating back and forth. I guess that's my question is, like, okay, so is it smoother? Like, here's my thing with Stefanski is, like, you can p- compare him to, I guess, you, your Shermer point is well, well, you know, well made, you know, because if you use Freddie, you'd say, oh, well, Freddie just didn't know, he had no idea what was going on, right? You know, Stefanski is very organized and detail-oriented. I would just say, you know, he called plays for, what, the last 21 games he was in in Minnesota and probably has a pretty good idea of the way he wants to run his offense now. You know, is it is it easier for him to go out there and and call that his way or, or siphon that through Alex Van Pelt? I mean, I guess, I guess you can do that through Van Pelt. It just seems like you're really just taking – you know, what he wants and passing it through another person to get to, you know what I mean? Like, why not well, just directly matters, call the plays? It matters how much you're on the same page and how much you trust each other. And if they have that established and they have a better understanding of what one wants to see out of the offense, then I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think we way too often overblow the importance of who's calling the plays. Um, now, you can have too many people in the same room giving conflicting opinions, and then you have no direction, like you might have seen with the Browns and Todd Malkin and Fred Kitchens last year. Yeah. But I think if you're on the same page, it really doesn't matter who's necessarily calling the plays if you're both thinking along the same, you know, train of thought, along the same line, and you're going to want, you know, something similar in, in certain situations. It's just a matter of who's calling it at that point. But I don't, basically, basically, I don't, I don't think that in, in a third and four, then help and Stefanski aren't going to be on the comms or at least near each other saying, all right, well, let's do this here. And, yeah, and they may, maybe they discuss it very quickly or not, but I I don't think that it's going to be, you know, a, a massive – I think taking one thing off of the new head coach's place is still probably the best way to go. Yeah, make a good point. You made me feel better about it at least, so that's good. I'll sleep better tonight. I'll uh, be sleep better tonight. <laughs> um, you've been working a lot uh, with the uh, next-gen stats for NFL.com, right? Yeah. Um, and you've been doing some really nice pieces. Uh, I, you know, I watched uh, – there's a clip of your best uh, deep ball throwers that you did on Tom Brady. That's kind of a cool uh, thing there. Who was the – who were the top five for that? Do you, do you know offhand? Oh, top of my head. Uh, it, it was Murray, Brady – I didn't know if you knew uh, that was Three was Russell Wilson. Two. I don't remember who two was. Oh, no, three was Mahomes. Two was Wilson. One was Dak Prescott. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, and then, you know, uh, you did the uh, best performance by offensive line based on expected rushing yards. And, of course, the Ravens were first. Um do you think, and I've heard this multiple times now, do you think that the Ravens have the best roster in the NFL, Nick? Yes, I, I think they do. I think they had a very strong roster last year, and they got better in almost every area this year. I think they're going to figure have to figure out how to replace Marshall Yonda. That's probably their biggest weakness in their entire team, is how they're going to replace their guard, um, who's headed to a Hall of Fame finish. Uh, and I think that's very difficult for anybody to replace. The Browns are obviously still trying to replace Joe Thomas uh, yeah. in the Hall of Fame career that he finished. But I think the way the offense is set up, as long as you can get somebody who's performing at average or better at right guard, it's not going to be as big of an issue. Uh, and I think they're stronger across the board. I would like to see 
what happens if a team does what the Browns did or the Ravens week two last or week four last year, excuse me, when they caged Lamar Jackson, forced him to throw a little bit, threw an interception. Um, you know, they the Ravens turned the ball over a few times and uh, you know, the Browns came away with a stunning victory at the time. Uh, because that's kind of what Tennessee did in the playoffs, which is what led to Baltimore's collapse. But a big part of that was they couldn't run the ball with Mark Ingram because he was still kind of hurt. Uh, their offense just couldn't get going. It, it's a matter of, you know, uh, keeping them contained and then forcing Lamar to throw. And, and he's he can obviously sling it down the field and make, you know, spectacular highlight plays. But uh, on a down-by-down basis, I still need to see a little bit more from him in that in that regard, uh, you know, to see if, if Baltimore's really, truly got – the complete team to go all the way, but they're going to be a force again. And I think on paper, they only got better. Yeah. I mean, uh, they certainly they're loaded and it's unfortunate, but, and, and I agree with you about Lamar. I think your best bet is if you can anyway, figure out a way to scheme it up and, and try to make him throw outside the numbers is your best bet. I mean, I, you know, I think that's probably where he struggles. It'll be a, It'll be interesting, though. They were, uh, I mean, it, it, it's hard, though. As good as they are, you got to think about how dominant they were last year. I mean, they were just steamrolling everybody. Can they really duplicate that? I mean, that's crazy to think about, but uh, it'll be interesting for sure. Um, any camp battles we should keep an eye on here uh, for the Browns besides guard? Camp battles for the Browns right now. I mean, yeah, obviously guard, I think, is one. Um I want to see how the Browns use Tione Takitaki in year mm-hmm. two. Uh, you know, he's back behind the likes of Joe Schobert last year uh, as a team's middle linebacker, and, and I would like to see if he gets elevated and can take the next step. Uh, Delpit, I think, is expected to start, but it'll be interesting to see how, you know, veterans like Sadeo kind of factor mm-hmm. into that. And um, you pretty much are set everywhere else, really, defensively um, and offensively. Yeah. I mean, you know, Really, it's actually pretty. Uh, it's a pretty lackluster team when it comes to looking for position battles because they just don't see that many. Um, we'll see. I I always knew when I was there last year um, and, and talking to people around the league, especially some people in LA, they were huge fans of Daryl Hodge for his special teams ability, but they also thought he had a really high ceiling. Uh, so maybe he can make some noise. And I'm a huge fan of Donovan People Jones. I can't wait to see him play and see what he can do with this team. So I think, you know, you're, that's basically your five receivers right there. Uh, Taewon Taylor probably, or no, Damian Riley being the fifth or sixth. Depends on what happens with him and Hodge. But I think People Jones gets up there. Taewon Taylor might be on the chopping block. Uh, just do they find a space for JoJo Nathan as their returner ain't or not? Uh, you know, that's kind of interesting too. So uh, yeah. unlike last year, I think we have a lot less competition though, definitely. Let's uh, let's hope that's a good thing. What final question for you? Just want to get your opinion. What do you think, Nick, of virtual fans at NFL games? I mean, it's worked out great in in the NBA. Uh, the okay. arena is obviously smaller. Uh, it's easier to kind of present on a video board. An NFL stadium is cavernous uh, by mm-hmm. comparison. Mm-hmm. I don't know if how they do that. But I think it's a great idea. I think the NFL kind of pioneered the virtual fan concept with the NFL draft. And then mm-hmm. the NBA kind of took that from them and, and applied it to what they've got going down in Orlando. I think it's a great idea. I mean, anything to get fans involved 
virtually. I mean, I even watched Formula One races, and they have virtual fans on their scoreboards as guys come around to the turn in their cars. So, you know, cheering for certain. I think I watched the race from Sunday. Some guy poured milk on himself in his moment on the screen. So, like, you know, you get some fun, like, zany stuff. But the difference is, is like, those are sports that kind of have a consistent pace. So you have those abilities to kind of turn to fans and do that kind of thing. Football's different. The pace is different. Um, it's going to be weird. I, it, every game that there's no fans in, it's going to be weird. And, and I think that's going to be the most difficult thing for the broadcast to overcome is the lack of the crowd roar, uh, which you don't really have to overcome with basketball so much, and definitely not with baseball. Uh, and I think that'll be the biggest difference. But, you know, we're not quite at that point where we're not going to not going to have fans in every stadium. It's just kind of being delayed. We'll see what happens in the coming months. I still believe that we're not going to have any fans in the stadium, but it's obviously not, you know, written in stone as of now. So it's going to be strange. Everything this year is strange, and we all look forward to a return to normalcy or some version of normalcy after this is all said and done. But this year, we should really just be thankful that there's going to be football on the field above all. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Because for a while there, you know, it seemed like uh, a long shot. It seems like they may they may have it, you know, knock on wood, but it seems like they may have it under control, you know, with the protocols and everything. It's really going to depend on, like, you know, people not doing, like, what the Indians did and being idiots and stuff like that, right? Uh, self-discipline, uh, you know, so it's going to depend on that. But I think the interesting thing about football, Nick, is I just think that football will probably – the no fans, I think, will affect the players more than any other sport. Like baseball, basketball, I mean, they've really done a good job with the basketball. I don't even notice that there's fans out there. There's just so much going on. There's music. There's the virtual fans. You know what I mean? It's like right. in baseball, it's hard to, you know, it's at such a slower pace that it doesn't seem to affect it as much. Uh, I just wonder with the – with football, you know, how much of a difference it's going to make to players in general on a, on a you know, uh, adrenaline up for a play or whatever, you know. They talked about guys that are that shine under the bright lights and big crowds and guys that are just good practice players. I wonder if any of that gets, uh, you know, a little different this year. I think they'll offer competition will shine through, but, yeah, I definitely think it'll be different because anybody who's ever been in an NFL team, especially the one that's on the Perched on Lake Erie here in Cleveland uh, could tell you that uh, it would be very strange if that place was quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the NFL will come up with something uh, to make it entertaining for us. Uh, But, yeah, like you said, just just be happy that there's going to be football on TV, and let's hope it lasts. Nick, you were fantastic as usual. Uh, you are a gentleman, a scholar, and uh, your work is fantastic, and uh, do keep up on it. Uh, I urge everybody to go check it out around the NFL at NFL.com. You can uh, watch Nick uh, come up with uh, work with the next-gen stat stuff, some pretty cool stuff you're doing there. And uh, we always pre- appreciate you coming on the show, sir. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. I appreciate it as well. You're the man. Hey, how do you like the T-shirt? You like it? Does it no, fit? it's awesome, man. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you very much. All right.
That was the one and only Nick Shook from Around the NFL. He writes for Around the NFL at NFL.com. Doing, as I said at the end, they're doing some great work with next-gen stats, uh, access to all that, and uh, putting together some some lists. We talked about some of them during the uh, interview there. Always a good interview with Nick. Nick is a knows his stuff. Knows his offensive line play. He's on top of the game. So always makes for a great guest, and we appreciate him coming on. As always, you're listening to All Eyes on Cleveland. I am Brad Ward. Mikey's on the ones and twos. You can find our podcast where all popular podcasts are found, including iTunes, Spotify, Spreaker, uh, SoundCloud, Radio.com, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, although it's there. If, you, if you've got a, uh, a platform, it's on it. Go check it out. Lots of good episodes here over the past few weeks. As uh, I will remind you that uh, Hard Knocks did kick off tonight, and we had Ken Rogers on last week to premiere Hard Knocks. Very good interview with him as he is the uh, lead creative producer uh, and showrunner for 13 years on Hard Knocks, talking about this season and how different it is, obviously. Part of the reason it is different is because of the NFL schedule right now with training camp. So real quickly, I wanted to hit on that, just kind of refresher for everybody where we are at. So this was negotiated in the NFL, NFLPA um, talks of how the ramp-up period was going to go. So um, let's start at the beginning here. So from the 3rd to the 11th, which is today, uh, they were allowed one hour of weight room, one hour of on-field conditioning, total strength and conditioning in small groups under 15, duration capped at two hours, no conditioning tests, only strength and conditioning coaches for strength and conditioning drills. On-field strength and conditioning subject to Phase 1 rules, QBs, receivers, kickers, punters, and long snappers permitted to use footballs. In addition to strength and conditioning, walkthroughs were permitted up to one hour on each of the first four days and up to 75 minutes on each of the final four days. So, and August 8th was an off day. So, the last four days leading up today, they've been doing 75-minute walkthroughs, or they've had access to it. I'm sure they were using it. Uh, you got to use every minute you can at this point with the Browns, the new coaching staff, and everything. So what starts tomorrow on August 12th is uh, the gradual ramp-up period. Um, so what happens here is uh, a maximum of three and a half hours on the field, on-field time per day. First practice starts at 90 minutes um, with a max increase of 15 minutes per day up to a daily maximum of 120 minutes, so two hours. Uh, Remainder of daily three-and-a-half-hour on-field time limit applied to walkthrough. So you can do two hours of, like, on-field running and plays and everything actually getting into, like, OTA-type behaviors uh, and then the other hour and a half uh, will be still for walkthroughs. Uh, so the 12th and 13th, 
helmets uh, and approved protective uh, shirts are permitted. So that'll be tomorrow and the next day. And then Friday, non-padded practice days, no live contact still, but all customary practice activities. So helmets, spiders, and shells permitted. Uh, that'll be, that's why we said Friday was really the first day of practice is they can go and do like probably like 11 on 11s and stuff like that um, and really get into it. The day after Friday, Saturday, the 15th is an off day and um, and then they will be uh, in those practice all the way up to the 17th now on the 17th, which is... I mean, what, six days away now? Holy crap. Six days away. Uh, so so Monday. Wow, Monday. Monday, uh, they can start with padded practices. Contact. So duration starts at 90 minutes with 15-minute daily increases. Um, this is the 17th through September 6th. So... Game week, through game week. Uh, no increase or de- decrease in duration following an off day. Daily time limits dictated by the CBA, which is what we're talking here, 90 minutes, hour and a half, uh, with 15-minute daily increases. So you go all the way up to two hours probably. Um, and then uh, a maximum of 14 padded practices. So... Let's see, that's, you know, so you get 14 days that you can practice with your pads on and hit and everything. First regular season game of the season is the Chiefs and Texans. That's Thursday night, September 10th. The rest of the week, one slate plays out uh, that weekend, Sunday and Monday. So the Browns will be at the Ravens on Sunday. Uh, So not that far off, folks, it seems like. A long ways off, but really not that far off. So good stuff there. Wanted to go over that with with you as it's it's happening. So basically, Friday practice, OTA type stuff. They'll get uh, Saturday off. They'll do it again Sunday. And then Monday, really, they could get into pads if they wanted to. Now, they only get 14 of them, so and you don't play till the 13th. So really, you might want to take another – they'll probably take another five days or so of the OTA type activities before they get into pads and start hitting and stuff. Um, so good stuff there. Something to keep an eye on the schedule as they'll actually be, you know, technically training camp behavior begins uh, Friday. So there it is. You're listening to All Eyes on Cleveland. I'm Brad Ward. You, We had the interview tonight with Nick Shook. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, let's get to the mailbag. Tonight's mailbag question is from uh, uh, the Land Sports, and the question is, uh, do you think M.J. Stewart can contribute? Uh, so M.J. Stewart is an odd case. So we did a little bit of a deep dive here, me and Mikey, uh, into M.J. Stewart's background, interesting kind of here. So M.J. Stewart played at North Carolina. Uh, he was a second-round pick. Um, I think at 53 overall, he was drafted in 2018 draft to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So he was highly touted, obviously. Um, Him and Mike Hughes were both cornerbacks at North Carolina. Um, Hughes was a freshman or a redshirt freshman, I believe, and 
Stewart was a junior? Yeah. Uh, And they got in some trouble as they um, were arrested for assaulting two men at Chapel Hill, North Carolina apartment on October 4th, like a couple years ago here. Uh, This prompted the football program to suspend them indefinitely. Now, kind of weird what happened here. So Stewart uh, was officially charged with uh, misdemeanor assault and battery while Hughes was charged with misdemeanor assault with a deadly weapon inflicting serious injury. Um, The deadly weapon charge was not accurate and was only listed uh, because it had the same encoding as inflicting serious injury. So what happened from this incident, though, is Mike Hughes ended up going to community college. So he transferred out of North Carolina um, and went to community college and ended up at UCF, played two years there, and was drafted in the same draft as the guy the Browns just got, MJ Stewart, in the 2018 draft. Hughes was drafted in the first round, 30th overall. So they're both stud corners at North Carolina, but got split up, went their separate ways because of this incident. Now, MJ Stewart hung around at UNC and finished out with a terrific career there. You know, first team, all ACC honors and everything. And uh, he was drafted in the same draft. So they were drafted only, what, 23 places apart, one first rounder. Hughes went in the first round at 30th overall, while MJ Stewart went in the second round at 53 overall to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, they he spent the last two years in Tampa Bay, uh, mainly as a slot cornerback. Um, and they actually, according to GM Jason Light at the time, uh, wanted to move him to safety. He said he plays the run well and has a very high football IQ. Uh, from that was a quote from the GM of Tampa Bay at the time. And then so uh, they wanted to kind of transition him potentially from from the slot corner because uh, he's 5'11", 200 pounds. Uh, he ran a 4'5", 4, 4, uh, 40. So they were going to transition him to safety. I don't know. I don't think that actually ever panned out or happened. Anyways, he hasn't been great for them. Uh, Now, Mike Hughes, in comparison, has been with the Vikings, who drafted him at 30th overall in the first round, and will be competing for a starting job at corner this year. I read he was on a list of guys that have to play well in training camp to lock down their starting spot, because I think that the Vikings lost a bunch of corners this offseason. So you'll look at Hughes there, interestingly enough, getting that opportunity to maybe even start or be their top corner in Minnesota this year, something to keep an eye on. Uh, MJ uh, Stewart now with the Browns, as he was awarded to the Browns off of waivers after being cut or waived by Tampa Bay. Now, here's what uh, Matt Miller of Bleacher Report said about MJ Stewart. Um, He's too slow to be a cornerback. He's too short. Not a good enough vertical and too slow to play even in the slot where he has been playing. Um, He has average... um, Average uh, burst 
So short area burst, average short area burst he puts here, um, and not twitchy enough, a little bit of hip tightness uh, in his transitions, in and out of cuts. So um, with... Um, because of those things, his size, lack of flat-out speed, a little tight in the hips, uh, and average short short area burst, he will struggle against good to excellent receivers, even in the slot. And that's according to Matt Miller of Bleacher Report. So um, we'll see what the Browns want to use him for. It'd be interesting, though, and it certainly sounds like if you take what the GM wanted to do with him in Tampa and what uh, Matt Miller says, it seems like he would be served much better as a safety, like a strong safety in the box safety. He plays the run so well and has a good IQ for that sort of thing. You wonder if the Browns don't want to move him to safety because they do lack some depth there. Uh, I don't know if he's long for this roster. He may just be a guy. Then again, he's a second-round pick. He certainly is not. I mean, he is talented. Um, And uh, if you put him in the right spot, maybe he could um, be, be good. So you have that there to look at, as that's kind of the breakdown on what happened Interestingly enough, him and Mike Hughes at North Carolina, the the assault charge, you know, split him up. Hughes went on his way to UCF. Uh, MJ stayed, uh, Stewart stayed at the University of North Carolina, had a great career there, got drafted in the second round. Well, Hughes got drafted same year, 2018, the first round. He's with the Vikings. Uh, MJ um, Stewart ends up with the Browns after getting waived by the Bucks. Uh, you know, but at this point, his evaluation is looking like he may not be cut out to play cornerback. If he was, you know, the Browns really like Kevin Johnson at that slot corner. And they made, I heard somebody say if he was going to find a place on the roster, it would be there. But it almost seems as though Kevin Johnson, speed-wise, is just going to be better. He's a burner there in, in that slot corner. Maybe, uh, maybe you look at using him. For something else, like uh, like um, you know, a hybrid, uh, a hybrid safety type, or whatever. Uh, I don't know what they want to use with him, but it's we, you know, they were awarded a second round pick, uh, player, player that was taken in the second round. So it would be interesting to see what they tried to do with him, Andrew Barry, Kevin Stefanski, Joe Woods, etc. So there's the breakdown, the deep dive on MJ Stewart here on All Eyes on Cleveland. Uh, we talked to virtual fans real quickly with um, Nick. He, he liked it. I love it. I've been trying to enter my name in every contest known to man, trying to get... Myself in a virtual NBA game. How cool would that be? See me up there throwing up the deuces in the uh, (laughs) virtual stands for the game. There's babies everywhere the other night on one of those games. There's babies on all the virtual stands. I'm like, come on. This baby doesn't want to watch the game. Put somebody who really can enjoy it in there. Give me the seat. I'll watch it virtually. I want to see what that view is like. 
looking through a Zoom or whatever right to the floor. Interesting stuff, but something that I think that if there is no fans for the NFL, that they should incorporate. So uh, that's that. Hope you enjoyed the show tonight. We are going to get up and out of here. We will be back on Thursday with the big boss man himself, Jeff Risden. Uh, so don't miss a thing here on All Eyes on Cleveland. We're turning up. We got big plans in the future. I don't even know if I want to tell you yet, but we got plans. Doing big things here on All Eyes on Cleveland for Mikey. Big thanks to Nick Shook. I'm Brad Ward. We are out.